Yeah, yeah, we told me you're out of the fire. Your wife? Are you security? Dude, I'm are you in sanctuary? He's turning down. I don't know what time to do. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Bible 101. I am very excited that all of you are here. Um, I don't think that this is going to be as maybe deep of a class as the other ones, but. We are going to be discussing a lot of material, and um, some of it's going to be amazing, it's going to be fun, some of it's going to be absolutely boring, because as many of you may know, some stuff in the Bible is just kind of boring. Sorry, if nobody has told you that before, I'm telling you right now, you will get bored reading the Bible at times. Um, But whenever you look at the scripture in context of the entirety of the scripture, and begin to really dig in and understand it to me... Everything becomes interesting simply because you can see how it all connects, and that's what we're going to kind of be talking about this evening um, and for the next five weeks after this. So first of all, I want to pray that God would have his will and have his way in these lessons, that Revelation would become um, the theme of these lessons, and that maybe someone will get and understand something they've never got or understood before. I realize we have some people that's been in church for a long time in here. We have some people that's been in church for just a couple years maybe. Um, But I feel like this is going to help somebody. So let's go to God in prayer real quick. God, we love you today. We thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for your many blessings, for providing us, God, with your word, for giving us the ability to (coughs) understand you and who you are through the revelation of who you are. We thank you for, God, you dying on the cross for our sins, for making a way of salvation. And Lord, we thank you for an instruction book, God, that shows us the way of salvation, and that is through your word. I ask that there would be revelation settled in this house, that your spirit would lead us and guide us and direct us. And God, I pray that someone would just get a revelation of who you are throughout these lessons. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have a lot of material to cover um, for this first lesson, so I'm going to go kind of fast. But please feel free to stop me and ask any questions you have. Um, if if we do not finish this lesson today, we will continue on the next Wednesday um, because next Wednesday's lesson is much shorter. So kind of look forward to this being a continuation because I have a feeling we're not going to finish. So without further ado, if you'll open up to page one. Where did the Bible come from? Where did we get it from? The Bible came from the the revealing of God's word to ancient Israel over a 1,000-year period, 1400 to 400 B.C. This revelation was copied onto scrolls and manuscripts for more than a millennium after that. Some scriptures about the word of God. John 1 and 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Deuteronomy 4 and 2 says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, Neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So John 1 and 1, it tells us that not only in the beginning was the word, but that God and the word are one and the same. You cannot have God without having his word. And you cannot have his word without having God. They are the same. Whenever you read the Bible, you begin to understand who God is and everything that he stands for. Deuteronomy 4 and 2, it tells us that we shouldn't add or take away from the word. In other words, what's written in this book right here, that's it. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. That's why whenever I look at some religions, Catholicism, Mormonism, you see some things that they have more books and more scriptures and more things that are not in this book. And that's completely going against what the word of God instructs us. Hebrews chapter 4 and 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful. Powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And I like this part. It says, And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I remember reading in Jeremiah where it tells us that no man knows the heart, that it's deceitful and it's wicked above everything else. Yet if you know the word, the word will discern your thoughts and the intents of your heart. Another one of my favorite scriptures about the word of God, Psalms 119 and 105, says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet 
and it's aligned to my path. It's aligned to my path, so it shows me where the end goal is. You shine a flashlight. If I shine a flashlight, I can shine it as far as as far as the eye can see. And if it's a straight path, it'll hit the end mark, and I'll know where I'm going. But it also says that it's a lamp into my feet where I can see the little things that I might trip o- trip up over, that I might stumble over. Psalms 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Once again, go back to Jeremiah, the heart that's deceitful and it's wicked. But David said, the only way that I can get rid of that deceitful heart is that I hide the word in it. And then ending with 2 Timothy 3 and 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture. What is the theme of the Bible? The Bible has one main theme that runs throughout Scripture. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, there's one main theme, and that theme is redemption for mankind. The second blank there is redemption. We see this in <coughs> multiple instances in the Old Testament, specifically when God is dealing with the Israelites, and the Israelites very much needed redemption. Uh, Numbers chapter 21 tells us a story, one of my favorite stories. It's some of you. Has, has any of you heard the story of the bronze serpent? None of y'all. So the bronze serpent, literally the Israelites were doing what they do oftentimes. They were murmuring and complaining against Moses and against God because of the way that they were to take, the path that they were to take. And because of this murmuring and complaining and going against God and his word and the man of God, the Bible says that... God sent fiery serpents to bite and kill every single person that complained against the man of God. Don't complain against your man of God. But he did that, and whenever that started happening, the Israelites realized the error of their ways. Hey, we've been doing stupid stuff, so we probably need to repent. So they went like they did multiple multiple other times to Moses and said, Hey, Moses, we realize we've sinned against you and against God. Can you pray for us? Can you ask God for forgiveness? And Moses does what he does every other time and says, God, your people have sinned against me and you. They realize the error of their ways. So now I pray that you would forgive them of their sins, that you would deliver them from these fiery serpents. And what God did is he instructed Moses to build a bronze serpent and place it on a stick. And he didn't take away the serpents. But he said if they're bit by these serpents, if they will look upon that bronze serpent and remember me, that I will heal them and I will forgive their sins and that they shall not die. And that's just one, one instance in the Old Testament out of many that gives us a, a theme of redemption. It foreshadows the cross. What was the cross? God didn't come as Jesus to take away sin, but he came to, to give us a path away from sin if we so choose it. And he said, I'm going to put myself on the cross. So that if they realize the error of their ways, once they've been bitten by sin, the wages of sin is death, just like the fiery serpents would kill them. Once they get bitten by the serpents, if they'll just look upon me in the cross, believe in me, they shall be healed. And I'm going to deliver them from their sins. There still is going to be sins there, and sin still hurts, even after you've been freed from sin, even after you've, you've received the Holy Ghost, been baptized in Jesus' name. Guess what? There's some stuff in my past, some sins that I committed that still hurt me today. God don't remember them, but I sure enough do. And sometimes they come back up in my in my present time, and I remember them, and they still sting. Just like the snake bites may have stung. But God gave me a cross to look upon. He gave me a, a path to redemption. And that is the theme throughout the entire Bible. You cannot go to one book from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and I would even say one scripture that does not teach and preach the message of redemption. And of course, the main and major story of redemption being the story of Jesus Christ, and we all know that, and I'll go deeper into that later on in the study in the following weeks. So many people don't really know how to study the Bible, Um, so I kind of want to give you all a quick study on that. When studying the Bible, one must take a broader look than simply what is written. They must ask the five main questions about every single scripture. Who, what, where, when, and why? <clears throat> That's those five blanks. Who, what, where, when, and why? Does anybody kind of get overwhelmed whenever they're reading the Bible, trying to study the Bible? 
It's okay. Y'all can raise your hand. I get overwhelmed all the time whenever I'm reading the Bible. If you truly ask these five questions and study out the answers to these questions, I promise it will make it a lot easier. So who? Who is writing the text and who is the author speaking to? What is the author talking about in context of that time and what point are they meaning to get across to their audience? (coughs) Where is the author currently speaking physically and where are they headed? When did the author write this? What date was it? And when in the author's life were they writing this? And then lastly, why did the author write this? So we can look at scriptures like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. We all know it. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Does anyone know why, who wrote this and why they wrote this? Or who they were writing it to? Can anyone answer any of those questions? 2 Corinthians chapter, yes sir, who, were there, who wrote this? Jesus wrote it. No, sir. Brother Paul wrote that one. Jesus wrote all of it. Well, God did. But. Sorry. Brother Paul wrote that one. Um, do you all know why he wrote this? Why would he make a statement, these statements like, we are troubled on every side, yet we're not distressed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. The answer to all of these questions is in the Bible. Who wrote it? The Apostle Paul wrote it. Who was he writing to? Uh, 2 Corinthians was a letter or the second letter to the church of Corinth. Uh, What was he writing about? He was trying to communicate that there are difficult parts of being in the ministry and generally being a Christian in life. But God is still there regardless of the issues that you might face in life. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be cast down. You're going to be you're going to be perplexed. You're going to be all of these things, but whenever you are, guess what? You're not going to be destroyed. You're not going to be forsaken. You're not going to be in despair because God is still with you. Where was Paul when he wrote this? Paul was currently in Macedonia preaching and teaching the word of God. When did he write this? 55 AD. And this is important. It was after his first letter to the Corinthian church. So why did Paul write this scripture? Why did Paul say the things that he said? Well, whenever you read the Bible in context of this scripture, both the previous book and the previous chapter and then this one later on, you find out that Paul had visited the church of Corinth. And while he was there, he had been insulted and his apostolic authority had been challenged. Because of this, Paul simply said, I'm not going back to that place. I'm not going back to Corinth. It's a waste of time. They don't care what I have to say. They've disrespected me. They disrespected the word of God. So instead of going back, Paul decided to write two letters to them. And the first was to tell them of his anguish and displeasure for their treatment towards him as a man of God. And whenever he wrote this letter, he had this letter delivered by Timothy to the church at Corinth. The second letter, or 2 Corinthians, was written after the first letter was delivered. And after the Corinthians had repented of their treatment of a man of God and of their sins. This letter... Where this verse comes from, it was speaking of Paul's joy at the news that they had repented and come back to God. He is now speaking to them as not people that he's angry at, not mad at, and frustrated at. But he's speaking to them as fellow Christians and newly appointed preachers to the gospel. He told them as Christians, we are, we are troubled on every side. Yet we're not distressed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. And we're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Had Paul wrote this letter in the wrote this verse in the first letter of of Corinthians, it would not have nearly as an, as much of an impact as whenever he wrote it in the second letter of Corinthians. So it matters when, who, what, where, and why. As you approach the word of God, realize the nature of God is to reveal himself to you. The Bible, in its whole, is a revelation of God, which means that he has and is continually showing himself in scriptures. So we're going to start today talking about the Hebrew canon, uh, the list of books recognized as divinely inspired and authoritative for faith and practice. And these go as follows. This is not necessarily in order, 
Um, some of them have skipped around. <clears throat> A is going to be law, the law, which is what we're going to be discussing in depth today, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, B is going to be former prophets, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. C will be latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. You do not have to remember all of those. We'll talk about them in depth later. And then finally, D is the writings, the final section of the Old Testament, which includes those below. You can read them for yourself, and we will discuss them in a further lesson. C and D is what? Uh, it is Latter Prophets and Writings. Okay. So the first five books of the Bible are called – does anybody know what they're called? First five books of the Bible. Law. Correct, but what is the Hebrew word for it, or better known as? Anybody? Torah. That's one of them. That's going to be your second blank. Uh, the most probably prominent word that people use to discuss them is the Pentateuch. And that is spelled P-E-N-T-A-T-E-U-C-H. So the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch or sometimes the Torah. And, yeah. Sorry, guys. Is anybody, who else doesn't have a pen? Okay, so Blake is Pentateuch and then the Torah. This is also the law, as I previously said. Uh, these books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Moses authored all five books of the Pentateuch, aside from the final eight verses of Deuteronomy which were written by Joshua. These verses describe the death and burial of Moses. You can't write about your death if you are not dead yet. So, Joshua wrote those. Ma'am? Oh, sorry, I thought someone said something. Okay, so first we are going to get into Genesis, and this is a rather lengthy one. In fact, Genesis... Yes, ma'am? Can you just read all that A again? There's a lot of blanks right there. I apologize. Yeah. Moses is your first one. Authored all five books of the Pentateuch, aside from the final eight is your second one, verses of Deuteronomy, which were written by Joshua. These verses describe the... Joshua? Uh, that is the third one. <laughs> These verses describe the death and burial of Moses. Burial, B-U-R-I-A-L. Okay, Genesis. Key facts about Genesis. The author is Brother Moses. The recipients, the people he's writing to, are the Israelites. And the date that this was written was 1445 B.C. And it's my hope. Uh, I have a lot more information on my notes, obviously. But it's my hope that you'll use all of the information that you are taking down to further study the Bible. Use this as maybe an outline of the Bible. It's going to give you a lot of dates, a lot of timelines, because, again... Many times we get super overwhelmed when reading the Bible because we don't even know necessarily what we're reading. We just know we're reading some scriptures. So this will give you kind of a timeline. It will give you a um, introduction of what that verse or what that book is about. Um, so I just hope that this will help you all today. So Genesis is the book of beginnings. That is going to be your 6B. And it tells the story of the beginning of the human race in general and the Hebrew race in particular. The message of Genesis. Um, Genesis provided Israel with an explanation of her place in the history of the world. After 400 years of slavery, it is easy to see how such a history could be lost. Because of this, Moses explains through Genesis how God's original plan for creation was marred by sin. And how Israel was set aside for the special purpose of mediating God's redemptive blessings to the world. As a divine history of the world, Genesis covers more time than any other biblical book. Genesis also emphasizes the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. That is going to be your next blank. <coughs> this covenant gave Israel a right to the land. 
because they would soon have to take the land by fighting the Canaanites, Israel needed to understand that it was God's will for the nation to remove and exterminate the Canaanites. The book was written so Moses' generation would trust God by better understanding Israel's past heritage, present purpose, and future destiny as they anticipated entrance into the promised land. Generate, uh, sorry, um, that one. Mm-hmm. Genesis introduces the creation and the human struggle of the fallen world. Creation. What can someone say about the creation of all things, both living and non-living? It started with a simple phrase, in the beginning, God. And now we have the very world we live in. The creation that is described in Genesis not only is a description of how and when things were made, but it carries a certain power that cuts through even the strongest ideas and false religions or lack of religions. When one reads Genesis and considers it, it has the revelation of God's hand in creation. Atheism simply cannot stand. Atheism, there is no God. Pantheism, all is God. Polytheism, there is many gods. Materialism, matter is eternal. Humanism, man is the measure. Naturalism, nature is ultimate. None of these can stand against the simple, in the beginning, God. Because in the beginning, God. So Genesis goes on and talks about the fall. That's going to be your next blank. The major crisis for the newly created world comes in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. This resulted in their expulsion from the Garden of Eden because of their sinful rebellion against God. Their descendants followed in the rebellious ways of their parents, resulting in the long story of human depravity and its terrible consequences. Spiritual death and human suffering came immediately as the result of sin and eventually led to their physical death. That's what happens whenever you sin. Both spiritual death and sometimes physical death. Because the wages of sin is death. Next, the flood came. That's going to be your third flood. The growing power of sin approached epic proportions as the human race became involved in perpetual wickedness. And God moved to destroy humanity through the flood. We all know the story of the flood, I hope, where Noah built an ark. God said it was going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. What many people don't understand is it had never rained on the earth before. The Bible says that the water came up from the ground. They would wake up, there would be dew on the ground. And that's what happened. So whenever we talk about how Noah kind of looked stupid because he was talking about this rain stuff, you have to understand that he really did look stupid because nobody knew what rain really was. It's going to be water come down from the skies. This guy's crazy. But nevertheless, that's what God did. And he told Noah, build an ark because Noah was in relationship with God. He wasn't a perfect man, but he did love and fear and revere God. So Noah and his family built this big boat. Animals came on two by two. Rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Sent the dove out. The dove came back with olive branch, land, etc., etc. Not going to go into too many details with the story of Noah and the flood. But that was God's way of even whenever people have sinned and fallen short of his glory, Noah was his way of redemption for the human race. Because God always gives us a way out. Uh, Your fourth one is going to be the nations. The subsequent dispersions of the nations at the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages that resulted was not reversed until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If you don't know why we speak in tongues and why tongues is essential for receiving the Holy Ghost, it is the only evidence This was the language that was spoken whenever you see someone speak in tongues. Uh, I believe and many others believe through the study of scripture that this was the literal language that was spoken before the Tower of Babel happened. And the Bible says that God in the last day is going to restore to his people a perfect or a pure language. And I believe that whenever you receive the Holy Ghost and whenever you begin to speak in tongues, that is the restoration of that pure language. But it says the confusion of languages that resulted was not reversed until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. As the nations turned away from God, he chose Abraham so that God could bring a blessing to the whole world through his descendants. Does anyone know why we have different races? Youth, y'all should know this because I answered this question and talked about it. 
Why do we have Hispanics? Why do we have Africans? Why do we have why do we have different colored people? Some people I've heard someone say that it was because the mark that Cain received was that he was black. That is probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So if you think that, I'm not calling you dumb, but you have been misinformed. It's simple. Whenever the Tower of Babel happened, God dispersed his people. He gave them different languages. The different languages begin to mingle with the languages they could understand. They moved to different places. Pangea happened, which is the splitting apart of different continents, correct? And different continents are in different types of sun. People have bigger tans. People have different melanin. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think whenever I talk to the youth, I said melatonin. People do not have melatonin. <laughs> Anyways, melanin. So that's it's that simple. What's a melanin? That is a pigmentation of your skin color. Okay. Correct. Correct. So you're a little bit. I don't know. We're about the same skin color. Yeah. That's where different colors come from, and that's where different races. And there's only one race, and that's the human race. But that's where different cultures and languages and all that came from. It came from the Tower of Babel. Um, So E. God begins to build His kingdom from His chosen people. We know these guys as the patriarchs. Probably the first and greatest known is Abraham. Does anybody know the song Father Abraham had many sons? Many sons had Father Abraham. Uh, His name was originally Abram or the great father. And he was later called Abraham, the father of a multitude. And including Isaac, the son of uh, promise. In Genesis 12 and 2 through 3 and 7... The Messianic promises from Genesis 3.15 were transformed and restated in the Abrahamic promises. According to these promises, the land, the seed, the blessing would all be given to Abram's descendants. The Abrahamic covenant is when sacrifices began and when living a holy and separate life from the rest of the world began. That all began with Abraham and his covenant to God. Isaac is your second patriarch. Genesis 25 and 12 through 18 identifies Isaac as God's chosen son of the promise, as well as Isaac's youngest son, Jacob, rather than his oldest son, Esau. The uh, Abrahamic covenant was reconfirmed to Isaac with God's promises of personal blessings and protection. The third one is going to be Jacob. The theme of deception recurs throughout the story of Jacob's life. Despite the fact that Jacob deceived Isaac and cheated Esau out of the blessing of the firstborn, the Abrahamic covenant was reconfirmed to Jacob in Genesis 28. This illustrates the unconditional nature of the covenant. If you are in covenant with God, no matter how much you sin, no matter how far you go, you can always come back to God. I'm reminded of whenever Solomon uh, did his prayer to the temple where he said, My people which are called by my name, or God responded to Solomon's prayer, said, If my people which are called by my name will umber themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their cry from heaven, and I will forgive them, and I will heal their land. And this is the same thing. It all comes from covenant and relationship with God. Jacob went to his mother's ancestral home in Haran, where he married Leah and Rachel, the daughters of Laban, his mother's brother. En route to Haran, Jacob stopped at Luz, where he encountered God personally in the dream of the angelic stairway, what we know as Jacob's Ladder. Believing it to be the gate of heaven, he renamed it Bethel, or the house of God, and vowed that the Lord would be his God. Jacob's marriages to Leah and Rachel produced twelve sons who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. One of his sons, Judah, would perpetuate the messianic line of Christ. When God told Jacob to return to Bethel, he insisted his families get rid of the foreign gods. That's what's crazy is Rachel and Leah's family and Jacob's fam- or, and Jacob's current family were all worshiping foreign idols. So we look at Jacob and we look at Rachel and Leah. Well, mainly Jacob and Leah because Rachel, she was just another story. She was cray cray anyways. But we look at these two people and we see how great their relationship was and the great things they did with God. But then we look at their parents and realize their parents were straight up worshiping false idols. So that kind of tells us that it don't matter who your parents are. It don't matter who you have lived with, who you were raised by. It's all about you and your relationship with God. Joseph will be your fifth. And we all know the story of Joseph. Genesis 37 through 50 focuses on Joseph as the human instrument God would use to relocate the sons of Jacob to Egypt. 
God's selection of the younger brother to accomplish his will reveals a pattern. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah over Joseph, or Judah and Joseph over Reuben, Ephraim over Manasseh. Throughout Genesis, indicated that God is not limited by human preference for the firstborn. Can any second or thirdborn children say amen? Because it is not all about when you were born. Back in those days, the firstborn was always the preference of the parents, but it was not always God's preference. Amen. Despite his brother's evil intentions and subsequent deception of their father, Jacob records how Joseph was promoted to second in command over all of Egypt. Joseph's exaltation resulted in all the brothers being reunited and bringing their father Jacob to Egypt. <coughs> of particular significance is the prediction that the Messiah would come from Judah. While Judah received the birthright, Joseph was given a double blessing through the adoption of his sons Ephraim and Manasseh as the sons of Israel, each becoming a future tribe of Israel. Thus the author sets the stage for the story of the Exodus that follows. So in conclusion, in Genesis, God speaks, creates, calls, blesses, promises, and visits his creation to intervene personally in the lives of his people. In Genesis, we find the well-known stories of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and his family, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, and all of their sons. Does anyone have any questions about the book of Genesis? Okay. So moving on to Exodus. Exodus was also written by Moses. The Israelites were also the recipients of these writings, and the date of the recordings was 1445 B.C. <clears throat> so Exodus speaks to the liberation of Israel. It tells the dramatic story of the slavery, emancipation, and liberation of the Israelites. The message. The book of Exodus focuses on Moses' life, which can be divided into three 40-year time periods. That blink is three 40-year. Is anybody else burning up, or is it just me? It's just me. It's hot in here. So three 40-year time periods. They include the period from Moses' birth to his rearing as prince of Egypt, the time he spent in Midian as a shepherd, uh, also known as the wilderness. That's when he went to the wilderness. The time he spent as the leader of the people in Exodus and their wilderness journeys. The book of Exodus confers... The first two of these periods and introduces the third period, Exodus from Egyptian bondage. Uh, your first is going to be redemption right there. Jacob's descendants migrated to Egypt where they grew in number. After Joseph's death, a new pharaoh rose up who was unaware of Joseph and began to subjugate the Jewish people. Subjugate means they made them slaves. Uh, the Jewish people. Following this, another pharaoh attempted to reduce the Jewish population through infanticide, also known as the killing of babies, yet still God multiplied the people. <clears throat> God used Moses during this time to ensure the redemption of his people. Um, during this time, Moses encountered God at the burning bush, and that is where he first gets a revelation of who God is, and that's where God tells him, I am that I am. Or better translated, I will be whatever you need me to be. Um, I think it's pretty cool that Jesus backs up the fact that he is God whenever he tells the people he's speaking to before Abraham was, I am, mimicking God's word in the Old Testament thousands of years later. Uh, Moses tells Pharaoh that God instructed him to let his people go. Pharaoh's heart is hardened time and time again, which resulted in the ten plagues. These plagues included water being turned into blood. Frogs, lice, flies, livestock disease, boils, extreme heat, locust, darkness, and death to the firstborn. Your second is going to be liberation. <clears throat> After Pharaoh finally gave Israel permission to leave Egypt, the redeemed nation journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. This was the first major move of the nation after 430 years of bondage in Egypt. 
Although the nation was delivered from slavery, her liberation was tested by Pharaoh's pursuing army. However, they accomplished However, God accomplished the nation's complete liberation from Egypt by allowing Israel miraculously to pass through the Red Sea and by drowning the pursuing Egyptian army. I got a good story about that. Uh, does anybody know who Johnny James is? Preacher? He, uh, he told a story about one time he went to a college. I think it was UT Texas actually. And there was a professor that was debating him about this instance about um, the Israelites passing through the Red Sea on dry ground. And what the professor was claiming is if you look at the geographical stuff, that the Red Sea, that this miracle wasn't really a miracle because the Red Sea was only like a couple feet deep. And whenever he told Johnny James this, Johnny James began to shout and rejoice and say, wow, I can't believe that. That's the most greatest thing I've ever heard. And the, the professor responded and said, are you stupid? Why, how is that the greatest thing? I just proved that your God didn't do a miracle and that the Bible is falsely claiming something. And Johnny James said, no, that's a greater miracle than I ever thought it was. The guy said, why is that? And Johnny James said, well, God drowned all those Egyptians in two foot of water. Now, how did that happen? Proves that the Bible can stand test to any human thought and human mindset. So your third is going to be preservation. Israel's liberation from Egypt did not end its problems. For now it needed God's preservation in the barren wilderness. Guess what? Getting the Holy Ghost does not end all your problems. You still need God's preservation. You need Him to preserve you every single day. God's miraculous provisions included guidance to the oasis at Elim and provision of manna to feed the people. Despite these provisions, like many times before and after, the people routinely grumbled and did not believe God and were disobedient. Although they were the elect and the redeemed, they still needed further guidance regarding how to live the sanctified life. That guidance would be provided in the Mosaic Covenant, which happens in chapters 19 through 40. Instructions for the redeemed nation. Offer of the Covenant. It's going to be that blank. Offer of the covenant. After Israel traveled to the foot of Mount Sinai, God explained that Israel would become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests if they accepted the covenant and adhered to its terms. Thus, the Mosaic covenant offered the nation the opportunity to be the vessel through which God would transmit his redemptive purposes. There goes that word again, redemptive purposes to the rest of mankind. After Israel accepted God's offer of the covenant, the nation then consecrated itself to God as God manifested himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in preparation for giving the covenant text. So our next one is going to be the covenant text. The covenant text spells out the obligations Israel must meet in order to allow God to bless Israel. The covenant text consists of the Decalogue, also known as the Ten Commandments, and the Book of the Covenant. The Decalogue, or Ten Commandments, is the foundational covenant text. Uh, yeah, is the foundational covenant text, while the Book of the Covenant spells out how the Ten Commandments is to be applied to everyday life of the nation. The first four of the Ten Commandments pertain to the individual's relationship to God. While the remaining six pertain to how members of the community are to relate to one another. Next one is covenant ratification ceremony. Uh huh. Covenant ratification ceremony. The duplicate copies of the covenant text, Israel's verbal commitment to follow the terms of the covenant, the sprinkling of the altar with blood, and the meal between the covenant parties are all germane to ancient Near East Covenant ratification ceremonies. They are all. You've heard about the sprinkling of the altar with the blood. You've heard about the meal between the covenant parties and, and all of that stuff. It all has to do with the covenant ratification ceremony, which is spoken of. And you see those scriptures beside you uh, in chapter 24, verses 1 through 18. The Tabernacle of Worship will be your next blank. If you all have never been to it, um, I think most of us have, but I'm sure some of us haven't. 
at the beginning of the year, January, uh, is it the first or second week of January, we always pray through the tabernacle, and it is great. Y'all need to make sure to make it this year. So the tabernacle of worship, the construction of the tabernacle or tent of meeting represented how God was to dwell among his people and how the nation would fellowship with God. The tabernacle was to was to be created according to exact divine specifications since it represented the place where God would dwell among his people. Included in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the table of bread, the lampstand, the veil, the holy place, the most holy place, the bronze altar, a single doorway, the laver, and the altar of incense. This was the place where the presence of God's glory, uh, yeah, where the presence of God's glory and his personal presence with his people was. In conclusion, the fa- the book of Exodus is the foundate is foundational to both Jewish and Christian theology. It illustrates how God is the redeemer from injustice, sin, and oppression, and thus serves as a paradigm for all future redemption. As the great liberator, God sets his people free to worship and serve him. He is also the source of the Jewish and Christian ethical system, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. That is Exodus. I promise these these first five books are the most boring books of the Bible, honestly. you got to read them like in context of everything else or you will fall asleep, especially with Numbers. Has anyone actually tried to read through Numbers before? Numbers is actually, it's good. Oh, it's great. After about the fifth time through it. Numbers is great once you get through like all 46,000 names. Yeah. All right, key facts. Author, Moses. Recipients is Israel while they're at Sinai, or Israel at Sinai. Sinai, I'm mispronouncing it, but that's how I pronounce it, so y'all are just going to have to deal with it. S-I-N-A-I. Some people pronounce it Sinai. I've heard it pronounced all kinds of different ways. S-I-N-A-I. And the date is also 1445 B.C. And by the way, these dates are when the book was written, not when the actual event is occurring. Not all this happened in one year. Um, The way of holiness is what Leviticus teaches us. I love Leviticus. It really is one of my favorite books. It is about priests. It's about preachers. It's about – we talked about in Exodus how – um, it was God's will for all of Israel to be priests and preachers and leaders. But because – and I'll talk about some more uh, throughout this one. But because of their murmuring and complaining and specifically one instance of turning against God, uh, there was one tribe, also known as the Levites, hence the word Leviticus, that did not turn against God. And because of that, the Levites got an inheritance of the priestly stuff. So Leviticus teaches the people of Israel how they were <coughs> excuse me, to walk in practical holiness with God, which was necessary because of Israel's status as God's elect, redeemed, and regenerated people. The message of Leviticus is that the nation could achieve progressive sanctification, which is what I'm still trying to achieve today, and you as well. Uh, Thus, they become distinct from the surrounding nations through daily access to God via the sacrifices and (coughs) through obedience. Excuse me. Uh, The book places great emphasis on holiness, which in Hebrew means Gadesh, which is used 87 times in the book of Leviticus. If you are in question of holiness, go read Leviticus and you'll understand why we need to be holy. The way of the Holy One, sacrifice. Laws of sacrifice is going to be your next blank. Way of holiness? Yeah, so D is way of the Holy One, sacrifice, and that Roman number one is laws of sacrifice. That's your blank. So Moses outlines the five sacrifices that guarantee the Jew ongoing fellowship with God. The first three sacrifices were voluntary and were a what's known as a sweet savor to the Lord. The first sacrifice, the burnt offering, was given for the purpose of making atonement for sins in general and as a sign of, God, of a person's dedication to God. 
The second sacrifice was the meal or the grain offering, and it was offered as thanksgiving for the harvest. The third sacrifice was the fellowship or peace offering, which expressed thanksgiving and celebration regarding the reconciliation between the worshiper and God that was procured by the burnt offering. The final two sacrifices were compulsory and were issued for the purpose of restoring broken fellowship between the sinner and God. People brought a sin offering for the purpose of making atonement for specific sins. So this is what I I teach this in my Bible study that I teach to newcomers. Back in the day, they had to make an offering for every sin that they committed based on that sin. If you lie, you got to sacrifice the goat. If you cheat, you got to sacrifice 12 goats. If you steal, you got to sacrifice a lamb that was perfect. If you if you kill, man, you about to slaughter the entire herd. Like it, it was crazy. So they had to make a a an offering, a sacrifice for each sin that they committed, specific to the sins. So aren't you thankful? And I am very thankful that all we got to do is say, God, I did something stupid again. Yeah. Forgive me. Amen. I'm turning from my wicked ways. I repent of everything that I've done, and God will forgive you. The Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive you. The other offering, known as the trespass or guilt offering, was designed to atone for sin as well as making restitution for particular sins. <coughs> Atonement involved offering a ram without defect. Restitution occurred with a monetary payment for the sin. The offering was not only... Forgave The offering not only forgave the offender for specific sins, but it also reminded them that sins has an ongoing temporal consequences even after God has forgiven it. Look, if I had to pay literally in money for all the sins that I've done, your boy would be broke. I wouldn't have nothing. And I know many of us would be the same Amen. way. Ain't that right, Brother Ash? Yes, sir. Bankrupt. Uh-huh. Laws of priesthood. Because of the priest's importance in leading the nation into practical sanctification and fellowship with God through the proper administration of all sac- of the sacrifices, the next three chapters, 8 through 10, are devoted to the priesthood. Specifically, these chapters cover the priest's consecration, commencement, and condemnation. If you want to know why your pastor lives the life that he lives, go read Leviticus chapter 8, chapter 8 through chapter 10. While Exodus 28 through 29 explained how the priests were to be selected, anointed, and outfitted for the ministry, Leviticus 8 through 9 essentially provides the fulfillment of these instructions. Way of holiness, sanctification. So this is going to be the laws of purity will be that blank. That is letter E, Roman numeral 1. Laws of purity. And I think I skipped one. Uh... Letter D, Roman numeral 2, was laws of priesthood. Did I give you all that one? Okay. Moses continues with the theme of Israel's progressive sanctification through fellowship by God, uh, through fellowship with God by commanding the nation to embrace and cling to and reject, re, embrace the clean and to reject the unclean. Although many of these distinctions seem related to hygienic concerns, truth, Their overriding purpose was to distinguish Israel from the pagan practices of her Canaanite neighbors. So whenever we speak of clean and unclean, uh, they're talking about the clothes they wore. They couldn't have – I think this suit is like cotton wool mix. They couldn't do that. Uh, They couldn't eat pigs. No bacon. They couldn't eat – Catfish. Catfish, which uh, I wouldn't miss that. Couldn't eat a lot of stuff. Um, So that's what it's talking about with the clean and unclean. The basic principles of holiness and cleanliness were related to the wholeness and completeness. Thus, everything presented at the tabernacle had to be physically perfect and without blemish. Even priests and worshipers were required to wash in the mikveh, the the laver, or the, uh, yep, that one, in the days of the temple. So I think that's pretty cool. So many times we want to put priests and preachers and the people that worship more than others on a pedestal and say, wow, these people are great. But guess what? The same process that 
the sinner man had to go through, the priest and the greatest of worshipers also had to go through if they wanted to get into the glory of God. And it is the same today. So your next Roman numeral, number two, is going to be the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, was the holiest day on the Hebrew calendar. It occurred ten days after the Feast of Trumpets, following the Day of All. In Leviticus 16, it represents the high point in the unit dealing with the sacrifices. Next one is going to be the Holiness Code. Moses continues to exhort national sanctification and distinctiveness through obedient adherence to God's instruction. Next, Moses focuses on how Israel should exhibit holy behavior toward God and man. He points out that a proper understanding of God's holy character furnishes a natural incentive for obeying both the horizontal, which is man to man, and the vertical, man to God, aspects of the Ten Commandments. The principles of moral and social behavior in this section form the foundation for Jewish and Christian ethics. In conclusion, the holiness of God is the dominant theological theme of Leviticus. God is pictured as an ever-present, personal, holy God who demands holiness from those who want to have a covenant relationship with him. If you want to be in relationship with God, you have to be holy. The New Testament writer Peter draws on the theme of holiness when he quotes the Levitical injection. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Paul adds, I urge you, and this is the NKJV, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God, which is your reasonable service. Only the sacrificial atonement of the sinless Son of God, or Jesus, is sufficient to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. Let's move on down to numbers. Not sure if we'll get through it, but we're going to go. Also written by Moses. The recipients are Israel while they are in the wilderness. Israel in the wilderness. Date is somewhere between 1444 and 1406 B.C. It speaks of the wilderness journey. The book of Numbers tells the story of the wilderness journey. It serves as a travel diary of the Israelites after the exodus. So the exodus is whenever they exited Egypt from slavery. That's why we call it the exodus. Uh, the message. Number te- numbers tells the story of the initial success, is your first blank, and ultimate failure, is your second blank, of the Exodus generation. Initial success and ultimate failure. The Israelites male, or the Israelites males, who experienced the miraculous deliverance from the Exodus from Egypt, succumbed to doubt, fear, and unbelief. Having left the bondage of Egypt, they turned back in unbelief and wandered in Sinai, wilderness, in the Sinai wilderness, for 38 more years. The structure of the book comes from chapters 1 and 26, which represent the different census for the first and second generations. Generations is that next blank. The first faithless generation failed to follow God in the wilderness. But the second, faithful generation, willingly followed God into the promised land. Promised land's first one? Um, where are you at? Is that... You said the first generation in the promised land. No, sir. That was just my notes. Uh, that one's going to be... I'm confused on where you're at. <laughs> oh, second. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Generation. That's right. Sorry about that. Generations is what that is. Um, so on D, first generation, the first uh, Roman numeral one is preparation of the first generation of Sinai. Preparation of the first generation of Sinai. 
In the first major section of the book, Moses remembers the numerous blessings God gave to the first generation. These blessings are divided into those pertaining to the organization of Israel and those related to the nation's sanctification. This section, the section dealing with the ordering of the tribes begins with a census of the tribes for the purpose of military organization and their arrangement around the tabernacle. The next section, chapters 3 through 4, records a census of the Levites so they could be organized into various clans. Not only were these clans arranged in different locations around the tabernacle, but they were also given various different responsibilities over the tabernacle. While all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. A priest had not only been a Levite, had to be a Levite, but he also had to be a descendant of Aaron. Only the priests had the privilege of administering the sacrifices, while the non-priest Levites were considered the priests' helpers or assistants. <coughs> Failure of the first generation. That's your next. Roman numeral two. Unfortunately, unbelief resulted in the first generation's disqualification from the blessings of Canaan. Their unbelief and disobedience were so pervasive that Moses' own family challenged his divinely given authority. Disgruntled over Moses' marriage and ministerial supremacy, Moses' brother Aaron and sister Miriam rose up against him. The divine judgment upon Miriam came in the form of leprosy. Though Moses, just as much just as he always did, began to intercede for her on her behalf, and it led to her healing. Moses was probably the most patient dude I've ever met in my entire life, and forgiving. Me, very me. Uh-huh. Moses selected 12 men, one from each ancestral tribe, to scout out the land of Canaan in advance. After the spies returned with a negative report, Israel once again lapsed into unbelief and rebelled against God's command to take the land of Canaan. Their desire to return to Egypt and kill Moses and Aaron showed both a rejection of what God accomplished for them and a rejection of God's divinely chosen leaders. Although Moses graciously, graciously, hey, although Moses's gracious intercession once again spared the first generation from immediate extinction, God permanently disinherited them from the land's blessing. Only Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, plus all those that were under the 20 years of age, were exempt from responsibility. I got a spirit of pastor on me with all this blah blah, blah tongue tied. Second generation. Okay, we just got a few more. You're going to finish real quick. Second generation. Reorganization of Israel on the plains of Moab. It's going to be your next blank. Reorganization of Israel on the plains of Moab. <coughs> the second generation's blessings included Israel's political blessings. These involved... Another census for purposes of military conquest and inheritance rights. The divine decree that daughters with no surviving brothers had a right to inherit land from their children. The selection of Joshua as the new leader and various blessings that would follow if the nation kept covenant. Uh, your final one, preparation for conquest of the Lord. Preparation for conquest of the Lord. A second set of blessings pertains to preparation for the conquest of Canaan. This section includes exhortations for covenant faithfulness. It begins with the defeat of the Midianites. This section also mentions the settlement of God, Reuben, and half of Manasseh and Transjordan. Fortunately, these eastern tribes pledged to help the other tribes conquer the land of Canaanite. This section also explains the selection of leaders responsible for apportioning to the land, as well as the establishment of Levitical cities. And cities of refuge in Canaan. The Levitical cities allowed the Levites to live among the people throughout the land. The cities of refuge allowed justice to be exacted against murderers and also prevented innocent blood from being spilled due to vigilantism, thereby keeping the land free of spiritual pollution. In conclusion, Numbers is replete with many rich theological themes. They include God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and the necessity of covenant obedience and the consequences of disobedience. 
The book of Numbers also provides a practical insight into the depravity of human nature and the necessity of divine intervention in a fallen world. The wilderness journey reminds us that we are, we too are on a spiritual pilgrimage in a fallen world. Just as the Israelites had to learn the lessons of obedience, so do we need to walk by faith in God's word in obedience to his commands. And that is all for today. Does anyone have any questions? sure you have a lot um if you want i can send you all of my notes if you truly want uh want them and want to go deeper into god's word like i said i don't have time we'd be here all day and night every day and night to actually do a deep study into each book but this serves as a great outline of the books and where to go and what to study um so let's pray real quick God, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for your word that you've given us that's good for correction, for improvement of ourselves, that's good for doctrine. We thank you for this word that leads us and guides us, that saves us from ourselves. We thank you for being a righteous and a holy God. Lord, I ask that the words that I speak would, God, begin to reveal you into these people, that they would go from here, that they would think upon these words, that they would not just be hearers of the words but also doers. And Lord, we pray that you would bring us back at the appointed time. And we thank you once again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, to all of those that are wanting to give an offering, Brother Ash is standing back here for that. Also, give, feel free to give online. Um, is that it, Brother Ash? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you all once again. We love you guys. Hey, also, bring your papers home with you and uh, bring them back next week for the next lesson. One hour, dang. You timed yourself.